Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. I'm seeing the usual memes about how January lasts for 73% of the year. I'm not feeling that this year, to be honest. Everything seems to be progressing normally for me. I am noticing the mornings getting lighter slightly earlier each day. and I don't quite know how I feel about that. There's something quite nice about walking to work in a slightly dusky environment. But then, of course, we get to the height of summer and I'll go jogging around the streets at 5am in broad daylight again. Possibly. I am getting fat, but I think this is natural for winter. But I'm not going jogging in a named storm, of which we've had rather a lot of late. Something in the flat rattles when the wind's up, and it's annoying. I mean, I'm pretty sure the roof isn't going to blow off, but you never know. I'm away for the next two weeks in the Caucasus, which my research has shown is currently a little colder than here, although it's at least drier and slightly less windy. By a little colder, I mean that Baku and Tbilisi are around what we had here last week when it was a bit nippy, while Yerevan will be hovering around minus 10 Celsius which is nice. I do own socks, you may be pleased to know, but as I keep saying, it's very much at the wrong time of year to be heading out that way in the first place. Last weekend, I took an overnight trip to Glasgow. I'd stayed the whole weekend, but the trains back on the Sunday were affected by engineering works and mostly didn't exist, so I went up late on the Friday after work and came back on the Saturday evening. Late on Saturday evening, because it was cheaper, my ticket from Glasgow to Wigan was £12, and I've had beer and curious liquids that cost more than that. Not on this trip, granted, though I did pop in for a quick non-alcoholic lager while I had half an hour to kill, given that I was going there anyway to buy another bottle of whisky to take back to Salford. I could start doing blog posts and video shorts about whisky like I do for beer, but to be honest, it would be an expensive and fairly infrequent affair. Apart from volunteering again at Queen's Park Run, and it was good to see the old gang there again, the main reason I went up there was to get my hair colour retouched. When I had it done first, back in October, my salonist said it would probably last at most three months, so I pre-booked an appointment at the end of January, conveniently before my trip to the Caucasus, though I pulled it forward a week because of flight admin. As it turns out, even three months later, even at the park run, people were still wowed by the purpleness of my hair. It was getting back to grey in the roots in the front, but it was certainly it was still colourful, definitely, and it lasted far longer than I was expecting. Even so, it was a good time to get a refresh. And it didn't take as long as last time since it didn't involve bleaching my entire hair, just the central section and the rooty bits. She did approve of the shampoo and conditioner I'm now using, so that's cool I made the right decision in the shop last time. While I was up in Glasgow, I also had an overdue eye test. I'm supposed to have them every two years, but the time came around just after I moved to Salford, and because I wanted to return to an optician's I'd been before, I'd had a really good session there two years ago, and obviously they would have had a record of my prescriptions and everything, so it made sense to go back to there. Only, of course, they're in Glasgow, and I wasn't. I meant to go when I was up in late October, but in a textbook example of ADHD-related decision paralysis, I neglected to book an appointment until it was too late, and then they didn't have any. Even this time, it still nearly happened that way, let's be honest. I wouldn't be able to tell you what my eye prescription is. The figures mean nothing to me. Suffice it to say, though, my left eye is dreadful, and my right eye is merely a bit bad. 
I've needed glasses since I was a single-figure kid. I didn't think anything was wrong, but a series of incidents involving mainly depth perception. I once got sent off in a football match at primary school sports for arguing with the teacher-referee about whether a ball had gone into the goal or not. That I was the only person that thought it had did not seem to make a difference to me at the time. My parents took me to the optician and I ended up with glasses, probably, as the optician specifically said, for the next 50 years. I have no idea why he thought to tell me that my eyes would miraculously improve by the time I hit 58 years old, but I can't see that happening. In fact, my eyes are getting worse because I'm getting old. Not in an actual prescription sense. My left eye has deteriorated slightly, but not enough to warrant new glasses. No, it's more in a sense of, I'm at the age where reading glasses might become a thing I need to concern myself with. Not quite yet. I am getting new glasses, but that's because my old frames are snapped to shit because I keep bending them to make them stay on, and my lenses have lost the protective coating on them because I'm too casual with them. But also, this gives me the opportunity to get what they call, not bifocals, not verifocals, um, anti-fatigue lenses, which are apparently similar to, but milder than, the bifocals so beloved of the middle-aged crowd. The optician said the advantage of my being so short-sighted is that this is something that comes later in life to people like me, but come it still has. It's something I've been noticing for a while, actually. I'm having to take my glasses off more if I want to see my phone clearly, especially if I'm lying in bed, and also to read labels on bottles and cans. I'm not yet in a situation where computer screens become a problem, but that's just because I have a tendency to sit further back from the screen when I'm at my desk than most people do, and I've not really noticed any problems with using my laptops yet, but now I'm aware of it being a thing, so I'll probably create the problem myself in my own head over the next two months. Anyway, they're more expensive than standard lenses, obviously, which is irksome, but I pretty much can't function without my glasses, so here we are. Like, even though I'm absent-minded and whatnot, even leaving my water bottle in the hair salon, because that's obviously so on brand, I never forget my glasses anyway, simply because it's so blindingly obvious when I don't have them. That I can't find them when I'm not wearing them is purely an eyesighty issue. If only lenses could be as day-glow yellow as the top band of my bubble hat. Of course, it's the new year, and as such, the travel world is plastered with lists of where to go in 2024, best places to visit in 2024, and the like. Now, I have to say I've never been terribly fond of these sorts of things on a fundamental level for a number of reasons. I mean, sure, they provide a good quick way of inspiring people, especially people who are relatively new to travel, but sometimes I feel that they can be quite... Let's just take a run-through of what I found online and see if you can guess what I'm about to say. This is a list from the 23rd of January from Time Out magazine, which listed the world's best cities for 2024. Can you guess what the number one city is? Well, can you? A 10, and this is where I wish I had access to the old Top of the Pops and the radio jingles. Um, A 10 is Porto in Portugal, a city described in the article as being a great city for romance. I have no idea what that even means, and it makes it sound cheesy as feck. I've been to Porto. It rained. I drank port. Is that romantic? I have no idea. At nine is Rome, Italy. I mean, yes, but... At eight is Tokyo in Japan. Never been. Maybe one day. And people do rank it as one of the world's great cities. Seven is a possibly unexpected Liverpool, UK. I lived there before it was cool. But it's not like it's a city that's come straight out of left field. It's got a long-known history and culture, and it hosted Eurovision last year, so its unexpectedness in this list is its highest position, not its existence. Six is Mexico City in Mexico, which, you know, is one of the biggest cities in the world. The article proffers the next three primarily for their nightlife and their food scenes, but, like, there's nothing else to do there. 
Madrid, Spain is at five. London, UK is at four, making the UK the only country to have two cities in the top ten. And Berlin, Germany, is at three. So to the top two. Can you guess them yet? Can you? One of them, blindingly obvious. Number two is Cape Town, South Africa, because it's, quote, beautiful, unquote, and, quote, cultural, unquote. And described as, quote, perhaps the most unpretentious coastal city in the world, unquote, by one of their correspondents. Despite them also talking about, quote, top-rated restaurants, pristine wine farms and a swanky nightlife scene, unquote. So, yeah, definitely unpretentious, definitely down to earth. Come on to that later. Top of the shop is New York City, obviously. So what can I say about this list? I think the word is conventional or unoriginal. There's often nothing new under the sun and the same old places get pulled out each time, almost to the extent of replacing the previous year with the current year in the title. I mean, they're right in a way. If you were to list the great cities, there's a fair chance you'd name most of those. But I guess that opens up the question of, does this even need to be a list? It'd be a bit like my naming best football teams in the world and then not being surprised that no team from Scotland is on it. It's almost lazy journalism in a sense. I can't believe there's anyone on the planet who doesn't know what a vibe New York City or London are. I mean, sure, you don't have to like them. You don't even have to have been to them. But surely you don't need to be told that they're great cities. And honestly, anyone who needs a list like this for inspiration, who needs to be told and reminded of this, is probably not the target market for travel literature anyway. It'd be better to say, yeah, we know these are great cities. You know these are great cities. So how about you give these lesser attested places a think for a change? Plus, these city lists always tend to be, shall we say, Western-friendly. An endless series of cities in Europe, North America and parts of Eastern Asia, with the occasional other city thrown in for the ooh, ethnic chic diversity quota. It's very much geared towards a white Western mindset, which, I don't know, I guess their audience skews that way, but a couple of those cities do have big underlying issues with poverty, equality and other cultural issues. And I'm saying that here mainly because I'd argue that a city, a place, can't be truly great unless the majority of people living in that city or place can appreciate it to a large percent. Like, obviously every city is going to have things that are unattainable to everyone, but they're very posh. London, for instance... It has, you know, places like the Ritz Hotel, world-famous cultural icon. Cheapest rooms for a random midweek in May are £925 a night. But cities where a large proportion of its entire population are unable to access a large proportion of its attractions probably oughtn't qualify as great cities, unless the list is great cities if you're white and western. Which, to be fair, it probably could be. And note, in that list there is only one city in Africa, one city in Asia, and none in South America. That's an awful lot of the world with apparently no great cities for 2024. Their best cities list in 2023 had five of the same, in a slightly different order, then Paris, Barcelona and Amsterdam, in place of Berlin, London and Porto, Singapore replacing Tokyo, and the only cross-continental transfer being Dubai in place of Mexico City. That list probably feels even more conventional, to be honest. Now, for clarification, the rationale for the survey was simply to round up the best cities in the world. They're quoted as saying they want not only a list for inspiration purposes, but also create, quote, a global snapshot of city living, unquote. In addition, they all should have a, and I quote again, strong community spirit and an undeniable vibe, unquote. Other criteria included food, culture and apparently architecture. I would say I don't know an ugly cultural or foodie's paradise. I mean, I've never been to Bandar Seri Bhagawan in Brunei. But for one thing, architecture is relative. Some people like Glasgow's new developments along the Clyde. Laura does not. And for another, what people want in a city, either for a visit or a home, differs greatly from person to person. This is why me and Laura have different views of Manchester. We do both agree Salford is ugly, though. And 
not a cultural nor a foodie paradise. Salford isn't going to appear on any list of great cities of the world. It's not going to appear on a list of greatest cities of the northwest of England. There's only seven of them. To be fair, one of the other six is Preston, so at least it wouldn't be bottom. On that note, well, not Salford related, I did a search for less visited destinations for 2024. This brought me a couple of related articles that I'm going to briefly touch on. One was by Forbes and was less of a listicle and more of a we asked eight travel experts and this is what they said article. It was called Where to a Travel and Avoid the Crowds in 2024. So you'd expect places that, well, were less touristy, more unusual and exciting, where you can travel and avoid the crowds. Be aware that this is in Forbes, a website noted these days primarily for, well, blogger journalism. The first place mentioned is the Canary Islands. The article says they are, quote, still under the radar, especially for American travellers, unquote. The Brits, in my audience, are all raising an eyebrow right now. Don't go there expecting it to be less visited just because you don't go there. It'd be like me going to, I don't know, Antigua or the Dominican Republic or something and expecting it to be devoid of tourists just because it's never mentioned in our domestic literature. The next two places suggested are Uzbekistan and Kurdistan. I've been raving about Uzbekistan since 2014, and indeed you'll have heard my podcast on it some years back, one of my most popular podcast episodes as it happens, and the country is now, at last, finally, becoming more popular. But to be fair, it's still not tourist central, so Forbes here may have a point. Kurdistan, oh bless, it's been on my list for ages, but I've still not managed to get there as other things have got in the way. It doesn't help that there's often a travel advisory on the region, and while I have issues with travel advisories that I've mentioned several times before, that one exists always makes it slightly more hassle to get to, including insurance. Next on Forbes's list is South Africa. One of my good friends on Travel Twitter has had a bit of a spat with the South Africa tourist industry because, in part, she feels the board is over-concentrating on foreign, white, visitors at the expense of domestic, black tourists and that there's a concerted attempt to price domestic tourists out of the market. I don't know how true that is, but what I will say is this, plus the time-out mention of Cape Town as one of the cities of 2024, does suggest that there's definitely a certain amount of specific advertising to appeal to people, well, People like me, basically. In addition, in any case, I'm not entirely sure how less visited South Africa is. I went there in 2016 and I never felt like the only backpacker, never mind the only tourist. Even in Durban, a city that you probably won't see on great city lists because as a black majority city, it has a reputation amongst white journalists who emphasise its alleged danger. Indeed, I passed over an article recently on the 15 most dangerous cities in the world. The entire top five were in South Africa, including Durban. Kabul was not on the list. South Africa has a strange vibe in the world of Western travel, rated both very high and very low. But in terms of tourism, I mean, it's no France, but equally it's no Burkina Faso either. The next suggested country is that lesser-known and rarely visited country of, checks notes, South Korea. This is followed by somewhere called India. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. I don't know it. Now, I was having a conversation with Laura yesterday about this, and it may be that we move in different circles. Her bubble is much less likely to visit India than my bubble because our separate group of friends tend to want different things from a holiday. And is one reason why I'm more likely to be surprised at tourists in Aruba than Angola. But either way, I don't think anyone would consider India or South Korea in general as still under the radar, even, I suspect, for American tourists. And by definition, I'm not sure India is exactly the right place to um, avoid the crowds, given that, you know, it's the most populated country in the world. To be fair, the article talks about someone bike riding in Rajasthan, 
uh, a state with only the same population of the UK in an area about halfway between Montana and New Mexico. Maybe you can escape the crowds there. Maybe. Rounding off the list are brief mentions of the Azores and Tasmania, which, fair, although I know Tassie is becoming popular in my bubble, Namibia, which always feels more popular than it probably is. I think it's one of those places that's on many people's bucket lists, but not their actual travel lists. And quiet villages in remote parts of Spain and Greece, mainly for wine and hiking. These, I guess, are more what I'd expect from such a list, but even so, it's not like they're exactly unknown. What they are, in fairness, is lesser visited than the places you usually go, but still with the same level of comfort and confidence. It's like... If you visit Paris, you might like Lille, rather than if you visit Paris, you might like Bucharest. And certainly not, if you visit Paris, you might like Kinshasa, which, I mean, it very much depends on what you like Paris for, I guess. I guess my takeaway from this is the very strong vibe that my definition of lesser visited doesn't tally with the general journalistic definition, or the audience for which these articles are aimed at. I mean, I guess, compared with the average time-out city list, these places are less visited, but honestly, that's a low bar. I'm not expecting Kinshasa to appear on any must-visit lists, but it'd be nice to see someone like Benin on there one day. I'm expecting Kinshasa to appear before Kirkby and Ashfield, though, in all fairness. Another travel-centred list came from the British edition of Vogue magazine, who, in late December 2023, issued a list of best places to travel in 2024. They didn't limit themselves to cities, so their list includes regions and a couple of entire countries. They also didn't rank the destinations in any order, so it vibes as a kind of fairer list. But let's see. The list included Sifnos, a Greek island that I've never actually heard of, which I guess is a good start, but then there's a lot of them. They highlight that the island is notable for its clear water and good food. That said, I'd be hard pushed to think of anywhere in that region that doesn't have either of those things. Then we have Grenada in the Caribbean. Or is it Grenada? Its resorts were mentioned, and that could go either way, to be honest, when you think about sustainability, environmental effects, cruise ships and the local economy. But in its defence, the article does then go on to talk about its buzzing capital, the ability to hike through the rainforest, and especially highlights the country's scuba diving, including the world's only underwater sculpture park. Obviously, it's not my scene, but I've seen the pictures. It does look pretty stunning. Also, and I don't know if this is just me looking at it from a UK perspective, but when I think of that part of the world, it doesn't feel Grenada has really been on anyone's radar here. Not since 1983, at least, and even that wasn't for tourism. Then we have Quito in Ecuador. Here the emphasis was on architecture and design, including its UNESCO old city and on the prevalence of boutique hotels. Taking these criteria, one might feel it should have been in timeouts list, but it wasn't. Note that the article was written also before people with guns started invading television studios, but I hope that was just a short-term incident. Next is the Big Sur, California. I think the way this one is described here is that it's specifically appealing to the road trippers with the subtext of slow down. The listed attractions here, apart from the scenery, are mainly cute hotels on a road trip you're already doing, so the implication is why not stay a while to enjoy the view from a lovely place. Tangier in Mexico is the next one. I've only briefly passed through here. I didn't get a sense it was any significantly different from anywhere else in Morocco, though obviously the draw here specifically is for its cultural history. After all, there's still some pop culture lore from when it was a you know free city back in the 1930s, and it's associated somewhat bohemian vibes. In addition, the article plays up its luxury boutique hotels. As an aside, though, I have the same sense about Casablanca, a city with heritage, but which I hear doesn't quite live up to it anymore, and it's become a trifle soulless, though I've only ever passed through it on a train. 
Then we have Jeju Island in South Korea, which is on the list for two main reasons. One is shellfish diving, not doing it yourself, but rather experiencing the culture and traditions of the locals doing it, especially given that it's mostly an all-female concept. The other is, is its prevalent usage in Korean drama series, which are becoming as popular as K-pop in the Western world. So if you like the idea of seeing, you know, Game of Thrones type filming locations, why not make it international? The article doesn't mention the other attractions of the island, which Wikipedia tells me include Neolithic ruins, volcanoes and pristine forest. Bodrum in Turkey, the article describes as being, quote, the next Ibiza, unquote. Your mileage may vary on whether that's an attractive concept or not. It bigs up the vast Riviera and the city's beach clubs. It's a place I'm aware of, as there are many numbers of seasonal holiday flights there from the UK. It's definitely on our radar. Then Madagascar is next, an entire country that's vaguely been in my mind for a few years, but I've never actually looked into it in any great depth. The article talks about it becoming... It's sort of like an up-and-coming centre of eco-resorts and a centre for environmental travel and related tours. It's definitely one of those places that's famed for wildlife and scenery, as well as being another place that's often on people's bucket lists without ever being actioned, mainly because of where it is and how much it costs to get there and the fact there's not a lot else around it that's easy to access. Serbia is on the list, which would be an easier place to get to if they fixed their railways. I've been there three times, but primarily because I have a pen pal there, so it's an easy place for me to go and explore. The article here talks about Belgrade's nightlife and museums, specifically the one dedicated to arguably the most famous Serban, possible aromantic icon Nikola Tesla, as well as the wider countryside, including mountains, gorges like the Iron Gates on the Danube, and of course the associated wildlife. Galicia in Spain is the next one, uh, the draw here the article reveals being its beaches. Although, being on the northwest coast of Spain, I imagine it gets a lot of rain on those beaches. This is why Cornwall isn't an international destination. It also additionally highlights the Isla Cies National Nature Reserve, which is an offshore island with secluded beaches, forests, and notable for having restricted access. The area also includes the pilgrimage centre of Santiago de Compostela, a city I failed to visit because the train was booked out, because it was Easter Sunday, and I didn't make the link between the two. The final place I'm mentioning on the list is Paris, which I'm not going to comment on further. Suffice to say, the impression it's on the list is because of the 2024 Olympic Games. And while they're not necessarily doing anything different, because it's Paris, they don't need to, they're doing more of it. As lists go, actually, that one's not too bad. It's got a nice selection of cities, countryside, culture and environment, and a mix of really popular places, but, and places you might not have considered, I don't know if I feel inspired by it, but it's nice to see a few places even I hadn't thought of before. In October 2023, National Geographic produced an article they called The Coolest 2024, which they described as the 30 most exciting destinations to visit in 2024. I'm not going to go through the whole list in detail, but I'm mentioning it because it's another example of a list created with a good intention, but which seems to have let itself go a bit in its application. Its definition of a destination is a bit vague, as some of them are more akin to events than places, one-off reasons to visit a destination rather than the destination itself. The list is divided by continent. Of the 30 places, would you like to guess how many are on each continent? No, you're wrong. 14 of them, just under half, are in Europe. Now, some of these are indeed exciting destinations. The Wild Atlantic Way in Ireland is quite a fine road trip. Emilia-Romagna in Italy is mentioned specifically as a place to tour vineyards by bicycle, but honestly it's a grand part of the world anyway. And the Albanian Alps are a cool, lesser visited and adventurous place to go hiking. 
Where it falls down a bit is listing things like Europe by train and the European football championships in Germany as exciting destinations. Leaving aside that they're not destinations but concepts, are either of them really accessible or even appealing to the average tourist? The first one, you'd do one, maybe two at a push, but anyone interested in travelling Europe by train has probably had it on their list for ages anyway and has planned an interrail or your rail ticket or even has one. The majority of people would only be visiting a couple of cities at most on a holiday. And as for the second one, if you don't already have a match ticket, forget about it. And would you really want to be in the same city as a whole gaggle of football supporters? At least with ice hockey, there were far fewer of them and there's more camaraderie in that sport. As an aside, it also lists North Yorkshire and Galloway and South Ayrshire, the former in connection with rewilding, the latter being part of a biosphere reserve. I love the idea of highlighting these things, but they're remarkably niche. And given the list also includes Pompeii and Valletta, one might feel somewhere like, you know, Orkney has been a bit short-changed. So, 14 in Europe. The next highest, with nine, is the Americas, combined into one block. Included here are such things as the Abera Wetlands in northeastern Argentina, and not far from the Pantanal, the Acadian World Congress in Nova Scotia in August, with traditional Acadian food and music, the coast of Dominica, and a new series of public art installations in Miami. It also highlights a new museum opening in New York City, a city not shy of museums, but I'm mentioning it because it's described as being, quote, the first in the city dedicated to both international and local LGBTQ plus history and culture, unquote, which I'm obviously going to approve of. It also mentions the total solar eclipse in April as being a reason to go to Texas. Total solar eclipses occur roughly twice every three years. Though in fairness, Texas is a relatively easy place for a relatively large number of people to get to to see one. It's not Kagulan. This leaves a grand total of seven left in the rest of the world, the largest bulk of the world and the most populous part of the world. And given the nature of the items in the list thus far, it feels weird that such a large part of the world wouldn't have as many interesting reasons to visit in 2024. Well, three of them are in Africa. The Andrafana Dry Forests in Madagascar, popular country, mentioned here as they've been recently added to the UNESCO list, famous for hosting lots of baobabs, amongst other things. Aga Gerar, a national park in Rwanda, that contains swampland, woodland and savannah, and an awful lot of wildlife. Think of it as a safari destination for people who don't want to go to, or can't afford to go to, somewhere like Kenya, Tanzania or Botswana. And the third place in Africa listed is Sierra Leone, as a whole. And it's listed because it has a new airport, making it easier to access. Why go to Sierra Leone? Beaches, mountains, chimpanzees. And a new airport. And better roads than it had. Oh, and did you know it's got a new airport? Asia also accounts for three. Sikkim, in northeast India, is mentioned seemingly because few tourists have historically visited, mainly because, uh, didn't have an airport till 2018, and then the pandemic happened. But now it's got a new airport. Why else is it on the cool list? Mainly because it's a bit like Bhutan, but without the tourist tax. And it's got a new airport. Then, the city of Tainan in Taiwan gets a mention because it's 400 years old this year, and it's having some celebrations. That's all it says. Finally, of all places, Xi'an in China gets on the list because of the terracotta army. This is like Pompeii being on the European list. The last continent gets one entry, a 560-mile round trip of Victoria in Australia that links thermal springs, sea baths and newly built spa resorts and is known as the Great Victorian Bathing Trail. Which, I mean, I'm sure it's great. I've, now, I've been to at least a couple of spas now, but... Really, is that all that Australasia and Oceania can manage that's cool in 2024? A lot of cultures must feel quite short-changed.
let alone that Europe gets twice as much as Asia and Africa combined. It feels like it's very much catering to a specific audience, given the nature of places and events listed to cultural, environmentalism, slow travel. It's not an audience that you'd think would be off-putted by less Western-centred ideas. It almost feels like a, here's a few places easier for you to get to that you think you might like because they'll make you feel good about yourself doing things your friends will think you're hip for doing. It's not a bad thing in terms of concepts like hometown travel and, you know, slow travel, ecotourism and all that sort of thing. But if I were to see Welsh whiskey, Belfast and South Ayrshire on a travel list, I'd assume it was a travel list designated specifically to cool places and events in the UK in 2024. Not a theoretical worldwide list that, you know, ignores most of the world. Unless the Welsh whisky comes from Patagonia, I guess. Which it doesn't. Now, I've whinged a bit about best of lists not really being best of, or even they not being terribly useful since they talk about places we already know. Best of 2024 being interchangeable with best of 2023, or in fact any other year. People have been visiting places like London for as long as people have been visiting places. And while journey times were longer, we know rich Romans did tourism because travel guides existed from those times. And people were writing about things like pan-European cuisine. We know, for instance, that Britannia, what later became known as Great Britain, was famous in the Roman Empire for its oysters with the caveat that you had to go there to sample them because refrigeration hadn't yet become advanced enough for effective transportation. But what would a better list look like? What would a list of, say, best destinations to visit in 2024 look like if it included both the known and the obscure, the close to home and the far away, the mundane and the quirky, and which covers most of the world? Well, fear not, listeners, as, of all people, CNN came up with one. Well, that's not entirely true. Its coverage of Africa is a bit limited, though as you'll hear, still oblique. And that's still greater than its coverage of Oceania, which, spoiler alert again, gets precisely one entry, but it's certainly more interesting than the other lists. In no particular order, then. Well, the order that they listed the places in. Here's CNN's best destinations to visit in 2024. And we start with Sumba, a small island in south-central Indonesia, quite off the beaten track even for backpackers. CNN promoted as a beach destination with a side of community and sustainability, so it's definitely one for the more thoughtful traveller. And then we go to Turkey's Black Sea coast. Although famed for its beaches, most tourists to Turkey visit the Mediterranean coast or the area in the southwest around Bodrum. The north is suggested as an alternative because it's less touristy, but also it's seen as more scenic and historic. As if anywhere in Turkey can be less historic, mind. My only observation is that it's slightly more awkward to get to, but maybe that's a good thing. Then there's Tartu in Estonia. The European capital of culture for 2024 was also mentioned on National Geographic's cool list for the same reasons of student culture, museums, the old town and a festival devoted to kissing. Not my scene, obviously, but definitely cool. Tainan in Taiwan was also mentioned on the cool list, but CNN instead talk about its street food, otherworldly landscapes and museums. It's interesting how the same place appears on two lists for two different reasons. Northwest Michigan is noted for its quaint towns, rolling countryside, wineries, cherries and sand dunes. Note that this refers to Northwest Mitten, Michigan, around Traverse City, not the UP. I've never seen the UP on any must-visit list. I've been to both. The bus route in Traverse City is called the Chariot, which is cute and amused me immensely. The only concept on this list is the Transdinaritsa cycle route, which crosses eight countries in the Western Balkans and will provide a 4,000 kilometre, or just under 2,500 miles, of bicycle-friendly route when it fully opens later in the year. Presumably it could also make a pretty good long-distance footpath, so that might take a while. Culebra in Puerto Rico. Not Puerto Rico as a whole, but a lesser-visited island off its coast, listed here because of its nature and water activities. 
This is very much one for the Forbes less visited destinations list, except it wasn't. Then comes the most left field entry of the lot. Angola. Yes, Angola. You did hear that right. It simplified its visa regime and offers scenery and culture. What's not mentioned is Luanda is often considered one of the most expensive countries for foreign residents, but let's not let that stand in the way of, well, the first time I've ever seen Angola on a best-of list, to be honest. Uh, St John, New Brunswick, Canada, mentions the Bay of Fundy and some historical architecture, and also has to specify they mean St John and not St John's, which is a different place in a different province a thousand kilometres away. South Korea gets another mention, primarily for, of all things, Squid Game. Apart from that, it's quite a vague justification, simply saying, quote, it's got it all, unquote. This isn't helpful. Albania, beaches mainly, though it does mention the old towns like Berat and Jurakasta, and the mountain scenery, especially around Tet, which I never made it to, because I went in in October and I didn't have walking boots. Most of the time, let's be honest, I didn't even have sandals. I ought to do a pod on Albania at some point, actually. Chile, which they say has a little something for everyone. But then they go on to explain it, unlike what they did for South Korea. But mainly it's the natural world and the landscapes, deserts, the volcanoes, the Andes and Patagonia. And the Abrolhos Islands in Western Australia. Underwater spectacular, with a large coral reef that's less visited than the Great Barrier Reef. And Macedonia in Greece, not to be confused with North Macedonia, but I've already ranted about that pointless spat. Anyway, Macedonia proper has, and I quote, archaeological sites, history-rich towns, and beaches galore, unquote. And no weird statues paid for by the state because the president's daughter was in art college. Panama, a country it notes as having a vibrant and historical capital city, lots of national parks, big on sustainability, and, a uh, small canal. Galicia is another site that we've heard about in a previous list. CNN highlights the mountains, the sea, and Santiago de Compostela. A slightly oblique one from Asia now, and that's Singapore's offshore islands. They're not something I'd really given any heed to, bar back in 2012 when I was contemplating taking a day trip to Indonesia in order to mm, take off Indonesia as a country I'd visited, and I noticed they existed. The article gives the note for sustainability, ecotourism, and a turtle sanctuary. Merida in Mexico. Not only does CNN talk about its beaches and its Mayan ruins, they also specifically state that it's one of the safest parts of the country. <sighs> kind of similarly, the next destination is Morocco, where they talk about its history and sustainable tourism, but again make a specific note that they are no longer hampered by the recent earthquake. On the list also is Florida's Fleshwater Springs, which does exactly what it says on the tin. And, also in the USA, and also mentioned in another of the lists, is Texas's Hill Country. Natural springs, cream pies, cream pies, hmm, hiking, food and wildflowers. Oh, and a solar eclipse, of course. Frugera. Don't worry if you've never come across before. This is very much hometown travel, but for the United Arab Emirates. It's a part of the country in its far east, one of the emirates, less known and visited by tourists, or indeed locals. It's noted for its mountains and its beaches, and for being quiet. It's also not very big, being the same size as the English district of Cheshire East, and has the same population as the district of Windsor and Maidenhead. Greenland is on the list of all places. Uh, it's expanding its airports. New airport. Making it more accessible, because it's got a new airport. This is a theme. I guess this means that you're going to be less restricted on what you can take, making it cheaper when you get there. For a limited definition of cheaper, obviously. And the final one on the list is Uzbekistan, for reasons well attested. 
especially by me. So that was quite a varied list, wasn't it? I think I quite like that one. It covers both ends and doesn't necessarily assume you're living somewhere specific. It's still a little Western in outlook, but it's certainly not as obviously so as, say, the time-out list of best cities. Didn't even feature Abu Dhabi. I just have a couple of observations to finish off with, and at first these maps sound paradoxical, but bear with me. Firstly, it's interesting how many places appear on more than one list. From the obvious, like parts of Italy, to the up-and-coming, like Galicia and Uzbekistan. It sometimes feels that there's a small number of places that everyone raves about. London, New York, Paris, not Munich, everybody talk about pop music. And a small number of places that people keep mentioning for cultural purposes. Morocco, South Korea, Madagascar. While there's a lot more places that only get mentioned in passing, if mentioned at all. Conversely, given a large enough list, it can feel that pretty much everywhere and anywhere can be mentioned, as long as someone's been there. But often when you get to this level, it's less about the destination and more about the experience. Tokyo is on the lists as the specific destination, but those who mention, say, Rwanda or Argentina, or lesser visited parts of popular countries like Spain, Italy or the UK, do so for a specific reason or activity rather than for the place itself. It's almost as if people need a reason to go there to see or to do a specific thing, rather than because the place itself is interesting and attractive enough. And part of me is thinking, but there's so much else here that you'd like, and are you even going to see, do, visit any of it while you're there, or are you just going to tick off that one thing you've been told off from your list and never come back? And then you visit Paris again. Because of course you do. Because everybody does. It's interesting too to see what countries and places were not mentioned in my base troll. For instance, Southeast Asia as a whole got nary a mention, with Indonesia, a cornerstone of my travel bubble, getting one small island, which is more than Vietnam, Thailand and Philippines got. Some of the world's more popular tourist attractions weren't mentioned at all, like Machu Picchu for one. Now, to be sure, I didn't search for those terms, but it's interesting to ponder if we're slowly becoming more experienced travel rather than bucket list travel, even if those experiences are still centred on the Western world. Not that experiences aren't bucket lists, because of course they are, but rather experiences tend to last longer and be more immersive. That's a subject for a different podcast. The Thoughtful Travel Pod is somewhere else in your podcast app of choice, but you probably already know that. I wonder what best travel lists would look like if I lived in Nigeria, or India, or even Australia. Would they be tailored to local interest? Or would places like New York City dominate anyway? Today I learned I don't need a visa for Angola. Something something anti-bucket list podcast episode. Well, that's about all for this pod. Join me next time for another adventure beyond, beyond the bridge. Until then, I hope you go to some great places in 2024. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.